Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Hard Currency, the FT's weekly survey of the $5.3 trillion a day market. A year ago, dealing rooms from London to Beijing and back were faced with one piece of news. China's central bank reduced the midpoint around which it allows the renminbi, or RMB, to trade by 1.9%, five times the size of any previous move, and it remains twice the size of any change since. A year later, offshore deposits in the currency are down by a quarter, and its share of global payments is down by over a third. Against the dollar, the currency is down by around 6%. I'm Michael Hunter, and with me to look back at the tumultuous events of last August and to help assess how far the market has come since then is Stephen Gallo, European Head of FX Strategy at the Bank of Montreal. Stephen, thank you for joining us. And first of all, what was your impression of the People's Bank of China move on that famous August morning? The August 11th devaluation of the RMB didn't come as such a surprise to us because we believed that at the time, given the backdrop of weakening fundamentals in China and what, if you remember what was going on in the equity market over the summer of 2015, the mainland equity market in China. We had an outbreak of wild volatility, didn't we, that characterized the summer. Absolutely. Given that backdrop and the approaching decision by the IMF to include provisionally the RMB in the SDR basket, we thought that the RMB needed to respond to the fundamentals, which it wasn't doing. At the time, PBOC was keeping dollar CNY pretty much stable and pegged, if you will, at 620. And the SDR basket, of course, being the IMF special drawing rights, which is the kind of golden circle status for world currency. The Chinese policymakers were eyeing admission to that, which has since, of course, been granted. And that was mainly the main driver of much of the policy. We think so. I think the lazy consensus or the broad consensus at the time was that the RMB needed to remain very stable around a certain level in order to guarantee admission to the SDR. But the fundamental backdrop, in our opinion, argued for a weaker RMB. And we thought, you know, if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the RMB is going to be a key inclusion in the SDR, it, it needs to respond to economic and macroeconomic fundamentals. And China's overcapacity issue and the outlook for its economy, of course, suggested that the currency should be in a much lower place where, where it has now moved. So from that point of view, did the devaluation of August 2015 work? Well, the... PBOC and the financial markets, as far as a number of different factors of concern, have been on a steep learning curve. The PBOC has been fine-tuning and refining the way that it communicates its intentions for the currency with financial markets. Financial markets have been learning a bit more about China's macroeconomic adjustment problem, what the details are, how that relates to the currency. So I, I think that there definitely has been progress. And if you look also as well towards the end of 2015 at some of the 
uh, refocusing of attention that PBOC engaged in, which was to take the market's attention off strictly dollar CNY or dollar CNH and to look more at a basket, the, the RMB versus a basket of currencies. And we should just say that dollar CNY, dollar CNH is the onshore, offshore trading band for the RMB, the Chinese renminbi, this kind of alphabet soup shows you quite what a complex state of affairs the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, has to deal with. And they have two currencies to manage, amongst amongst other things, which actually, anecdotally, we think is becoming a bigger headache for them. What do you think will happen there with that headache? We would assume eventually that the CNY, the goal is to make CNY the onshore currency, that is, uh, to mimic some of the facets of the offshore currency. So be more freely tradable, be more widely used in global payments, and so on and so forth. But a, a move to internationalize the currency that's predominantly used in mainland, mainland China rather than... But um, having said that, one of the things that holds up or hampers the transition uh, of CNY towards CNH is the fact that China is undergoing a significant macroeconomic ju- adjustment process. Making the currency, uh, you know, incredibly open and a lot more flexible and or floating it now, completely floating it now, while the macroeconomic adjustment process isn't finished yet, would, in our opinion, be something like putting the cart before the horse. Okay. And at the same time as all of those considerations, of course, we don't exactly have a peaceful global backdrop outside China. In the developed world, there's negative interest rates and the market troubles and adjustments that we've seen around that state of affairs as well. In some ways, although the special drawing rights and the IMF consideration was obviously very important, maybe even uppermost in policymakers' minds, was what we saw last year the opening shot in a currency war? I don't think that I would go that far. I think that what China ended up doing was allowing the currency to respond to macroeconomic fundamentals. Um, We've seen over the course of the last five to seven years Uh, The fundamentals in the United States, for example, dictate uh, to the Fed pretty aggressive monetary easing. We've seen aggressive monetary easing in Japan, in the Eurozone. Um, So macroeconomic fundamentals are the primary reason for the central bank action, which has caused the move in the currency. China isn't really too dissimilar in in that sense. And actually, given the the tension surrounding Donald Trump in the run-up to the U.S. presidential elections, who has promised to engage potentially in a trade war with China, it doesn't really suit China to have a significantly weaker RMB at this time or at any time really in, in, in the future for that reason. And while we look at the internal Chinese economic outlook, as well as the way in which it can filter through to wider global concerns such as the political outlook in the US and I'm sure also in Europe. Um, do you get a sense that the role that the RENMB, the RMB, plays in the global financial system is growing after what we saw last year? Is is the move to integrate it more into the market bearing fruit? I would say over the last year, in some ways, skepticism is higher about where China is headed, how quickly it's going to, you know, for example, leave its middle income trap, uh, how quickly it's going to join the ranks of some of the world's largest and most developed economies. Uh, So I would say skepticism is a bit higher. On a year-over-year basis, the capital account 
is less porous than it was. It's more closed today than it was a year ago for various reasons. China clamping down, tightening capital controls to control the flow or limit the flow of of capital. Um, but on a five to seven year basis, the capital account is more open. One of the things we can use as evidence of that is QDII, so qualified domestic institutional investors. They have quotas. They've been allowed increasingly higher quotas over the last five to seven years. So what that means effectively is that China can recycle its current account surplus more easily. And you can see that in the balance of payments data. You can see net portfolio investment outflows, net foreign direct investment outflows, because China is more readily able to recycle the current account surplus. So so there has been progress, even though over the last year, certain things have been done to limit the flow of capital into and and, and out of the country. Okay. So I I get a sense from what you're saying that there's a, a sort of softly, softly, one step at a time. I think that's right. Approach from and, policy, and, and you can see that with China's basically vis-a-vis the fix, vis-a-vis its foreign exchange reserve data, China has basically communicated a policy of gradual but controlled weakness in the RMB and very limited strength. You can't really get any closer to balance than than that definition. And against the pure market backdrop, when we see bouts of risk on trading, when investors are moving into riskier assets, when sentiment is strengthening in that sense, when there's calmer conditions overall, you get a sense that there's a different kind of strategy in mind than when people are rushing to havens. You were saying to me earlier before we started the recording that there was a slightly different approach between those two kinds of trading, the risk on and the risk off trading. How does that work? Can you talk us through that idea? Very simply, over the last year, what we have observed uh, in the RMB is that during periods of global risk appetite, risk on, yield grab, the RMB tends to underperform its EM peers or most currencies. And you can see this if you look at the CFET CNY trade-weighted basket, the trade-weighted index on a year-over-year basis. Um, The RMB in trade-weighted terms is down around 10%. Um, year to date, I think it's down around 6% or so. So overall, this year has been good for emerging market currencies. It's been good generally for uh, that, that, that area of, of the FX space. And amidst that general EM strength, the RMB has underperformed. The flip side, though, to that pattern is that during periods of risk off, the RMB tends to outperform. So effectively, what you have is a break on RMB weakness during periods of global financial instability, which is both good for China. It puts a break on global risk aversion. And it's also good for a lot of China's uh, EM peers because they're not getting um, significantly stronger currencies versus the RMB when global financial market tensions are high. So let's come right bang up to date now. Um, We were talking last week on hard currency about how emerging markets are enjoying a moment in the sun largely because of conditions elsewhere in some respects, the turmoil in Europe, the political uncertainty in the United States of America. Uh, What's your sense on how this RMB management policy stands in the emerging market complex, particularly with Asian currencies near to China geographically? Um, China China has a reasonably large amount of weakness versus those currencies year to date. And as I, again, I, I draw your attention to the CFET CMY 
index, the trade-weighted RMB. It's down about 6% year-to-date. Um, so that means versus currencies like, well, of course, the Japanese yen, which is not an EM currency, but that's in, that's in the basket. Um, Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, Malaysia, uh, and so on and so forth. These, these, these currencies have generally um, uh, gained ground versus the RMB. Uh, this year, the commodity-based currencies in Asia EM, like you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, maybe they fared less better, but but still, uh, the, the RMB has generally underperformed. Um, but our point is that most of that underperformance of the RMB has occurred during periods of generally good global economic conditions or generally good conditions for emerging market currencies. So. Even though it is a hit to competitiveness in nominal terms for those countries, it's not as big of a problem as, say, it was in August 2015 when China's devaluation incited a wave of global risk aversion and those currencies were strengthening versus the RMB at the same time. So what you have here is a sort of happy medium. It's good for China because its currency weakens in line with its macroeconomic fundamentals and countries away from China are not as bothered by that form of RMB weakness because global conditions are generally okay. They're seeing decent inflows into their currency and so on and so forth. Great. So final question. Time to look ahead slightly as much as it's possible to do so. Where do you think we'll be with all of these various interlocking factors, complex though they are, say in six and 12 months time? What's your outlook for the renminbi? We have dollar CNH at 680 currently is our view in 12 months. Um, the macroeconomic backdrop in our view in, in China is one of significant strain, particularly as China deals with its overcapacity problem that will probably lead to more uh, corporate defaults, um, more uh, rising uh, non-performing loans, more bank deleveraging, and hence the People's Bank of China will have to step in with balance sheet expansion, additional uh, onshore liquidity, and so on and so forth. And that will weigh uh, on the RMB. But again, we're not expecting any extreme form of, of RMB weakness. A softly, softly approach from China after the loud guns of August 2015 in the currencies market. Stephen Gallo, European Head of FX Strategy at the Bank of Montreal. Many thanks for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's it from Hard Currency. Until next time, you can keep up with all the latest news and analysis at ft.com forward slash markets and at. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Fast FT.